Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. You're listening to a special symposium episode of the show focused on financial and corporate regulation in the Biden administration. As part of this symposium, we'll hear from five panels of scholars and practitioners about what we might expect for financial and corporate regulation over the next four years of the Biden-Harris administration. We'll return with our regular episodes next week. As usual, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app. We'll let others know about the show, too. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast Symposium on Corporate and Financial Regulation in the Biden Administration. This panel focuses on corporate power, broadly considered, and features Carlos Chapman, Anthony Michael Kreiss, and Barack Richmond. Carlos, Anthony, Barack, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. I'm looking forward to hearing some of your thoughts on corporate power over the next four years, but I thought maybe we'd start by if you could introduce yourselves and maybe some topics or areas that you're going to be discussing in this conversation today and looking toward over the next couple of years. Carlos? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee School of Law. I mostly focus on corporate governance and structure, legal ethics, and what I like to call comparative personhood. What I mean by comparative personhood is that I look at the rights of human beings as they compare to various non-human persons like corporations. As I think about the next four years, you know, what I would like to focus on is putting structures and policies in place that can serve as a proper check on corporate malfeasance and to address other wealth and other inequality gaps that have run rampant during the last administration. I walk into the next four years a little hopeful. I think seeing how bad things can get and seeing how far we can go the other way presents us all with an opportunity to improve and it's exposing some general weaknesses in the system and corporate law is no exception to that. Thank you. And Anthony? Hi. uh, Yeah. So I'm Anthony Christ. I am beginning my, or I guess I just ended my first semester teaching at Georgia State University College of Law. I think I'm kind of the oddball in the group in the sense that I don't do anything with business law. I don't do anything with corporate law. I'm a civil rights guy. I teach constitutional law. I teach employment discrimination. So I do have a really interesting focus, I think, on the intersection of civil rights and labor rights and how it kind of interacts with corporate power and our understandings of you know, balancing the rights of employees and individuals against larger employers with a particular interest in the way in which we talk about religious liberty and LGBTQ rights in the workplace. So for a lot of my work in the doctrinal space, it's primarily focusing on those kinds of core constitutional and civil rights issues. But of course, I'm, I'm also a political scientist by training. So I think you'll probably hear a lot of my political science worldview bleed into my analysis, particularly when we start to talk about the things that we're looking forward to in the future and, and some of the possibilities and you know some of that kind of predictive analysis. So so, you know, hopefully I can bring a, a little different perspective on both those fronts to the topics today. Thank you. And Barack. Hi, I'm Barack Richmond. I teach at Duke Law School. I have a secondary appointment at the Fugler School of Business. And my areas of expertise, and therefore I think my areas of interest, involve antitrust law and health law and policy. So when I think about corporate power, I really think about market power and how the rise of, of industry concentration has led to higher prices for consumers, lower wages for workers, and indirectly, but mo- perhaps most meaningfully, a political economy in Washington that is 
really attentive to the demands of corporate monopolists. So the issues that I think about moving forward, unsurprisingly, in the antitrust world, the big news today was the FTC suit against Facebook and the Department of Justice's suit against Google that was issued about a month ago. My guess is that there's going to be more scrutiny applied to Amazon and to Microsoft and probably to Apple and Twitter as well. And this is going to be really interesting. Antitrust law has largely been dormant for the last not just the ten, past 10 years, 20 years since the Microsoft case in the late 90s, but perhaps even before that, there's not been very rigorous antitrust action. But what's also interesting is that you have a lot of people who are not only calling for enhanced antitrust enforcement, but really asking antitrust law to do things it's not designed to do or is not good at doing. And as this relates to my other area of interest in healthcare markets and healthcare policy, we have really egregiously concentrated hospital markets in this country, and that has been the primary driver of increased healthcare costs. And increasing healthcare costs has been the primary driver to stagnant wages. So to the degree that healthcare corporations, especially hospitals, can be challenged in ways that really open up greater market competition, that would be a very, very significant policy objective. And if it's achieved policy accomplishment of the Biden administration. Thank you all for those introductions. I'm really looking forward to hearing about some of the application of your areas of expertise to this topic of corporate power. This panel is essentially forward-looking, of course. We're looking at the next four years. But I wanted to maybe start with a backward-looking question, which is, are there areas of missed opportunities or failures that you've seen in the current Trump administration or perhaps the prior Obama administration that might give you some insight into the future and perhaps some future opportunities that the next administration might have? Carlos? You know, I think if you look at the two administrations combined, you've got this cycle of ineffective regulation followed by blanket deregulation, if you know, if I were just to, you know, encapsulate it all together. And what I mean by that is when you look at what the Obama administration did in light of financial crisis, that, you know, they do what I call, you know, what I always think of as an overemphasis on disclosures, since that's all that the federal government can do, and an overemphasis of monitoring and putting, you know, systems in place. And we've seen over and over again that that just creates cycles and it, it just kind of helps corporations evade the mousetrap, right? We, we can never build the proper mousetrap. But then with the current administration, we've got blanket deregulation that isn't targeted in the right way. And so, you know, with the blanket deregulation combined with a little bit of kind of spiteful tech regulation of, you know, entities that upset Trump or that don't do his bidding, you know, we've got a lack of controls that are harmful to the market, that are harmful to the public and harmful to corporations. And in many ways, this administration had a missed opportunity where if we were going to deregulate, why not go in and fix and address the things that were excessive in the last administration instead of just going in and blanketly trying to get rid of everything. We could have had more of a scalpel approach than a machete approach in this administration. You know, I think it's interesting to me that while we see stock prices going up and we see an alleged better market, it all feels very fictitious. It all feels, you know, like false gains when you look at the other things that were done to get the market to where it was even pre-COVID. Thank you. And Anthony. 
I think looking back on the last four years from a civil rights perspective and a labor rights perspective, this administration has really been an unmitigated disaster. Even in terms of just kind of litigation positions, Trump administration took more anti-civil rights positions in a way that, that was truly unprecedented in any time in a modern American history. And so, you know, I think there was a lot of significant potential for damage there in, in some ways. In some ways, the Supreme Court has ruled in ways which have circumvented the kind of parade of horribles that I thought might unfold. In other ways, you know, we've just seen a relentless attack on civil rights through administrative regulations and, and the like. I think all of that, of course, was to be expected, just given the disposition of the Trump administration from the get-go. But Looking back even further to the Obama administration, one of my great frustrations is that while the Obama administration in terms of litigation positions was generally very favorable, overwhelmingly so, towards civil rights and labor rights and really looking out for the welfare of employees. And to bring in some of these other issues that I think will be talked about too, you know, also patients' rights, right, against uh, religious incorporated or religiously affiliated healthcare providers, right? These kinds of things the Obama administration took very good positions on. But at the end of the day, what the Obama administration failed to do was to be sufficiently proactive in the first couple of years when Democrats held control of the House and the Senate. We could have made real progress in advancing civil rights and labor rights in this country. But those, you know, those opportunities were not taken advantage of. So, you know, a lot of what, you know, I think when we start to talk about the forward looking, forward looking stuff, you know, certainly a lot of that is contingent upon the two elections that are pending in Georgia for the Senate and who will control the Senate. But I do think that we need to keep in mind, you know, yes, there has been a lot of destruction and destructive attempts, uh, you know, made by the Trump administration to eroding employees' rights in the workplace and undermining the rights of individuals in public places of accommodation and, and the like. But ultimately, you know, there were opportunities not taken advantage of in the Obama administration. So not only do we need to course correct, I think, for some of the things that we've seen done in terms of damage recently, but we really need to be more proactively minded going forward. All right. Thank you. And Barack? I think we have a tale of two stories if you're looking about the Trump administration as it relates to health policy and as it relates to antitrust policy. The antitrust policy, it's very much echoes what Carlos is describing. It was a highly politicized administration. There are a couple of useful things, a couple of amicus briefs that were submitted by the antitrust division that were helpful. But the only way to characterize the administration's actions was through the lens of political payback. Originally, when they challenged the AT&T Time Warner merger. A lot of economists thought that was a really good idea, but the reason they did it, and frankly, they it was a good idea to do it, I think, but the reason they did it is because they didn't like CNN wanting to punish CNN. There were indications that they prioritized antitrust enforcement against marijuana growers, not because they threatened any kind of market concentration, but because Bill Barr didn't like marijuana. They went after auto companies because they're adhering to rules coming out of California that the Trump administration didn't like, or maybe just didn't like California. The antitrust division also countered the Federal Trade Commission in a very important litigation with Qualcomm under the basic argument that 
monopolies are okay if there are monopolies and not Chinese monopolies. Of course, that's counter to antitrust law. And frankly, it's counter to anyone who believes in a liberal market. So the antitrust story among the Trump administration is really hard to characterize as anything but one acting out of self-interest. The Obama administration's antitrust policy, I think, certainly is preferable to one motivated by self-interest. It is probably subject to criticisms that it was not sufficiently aggressive. And, you know, since the Obama administration left, most markets are more concentrated and there's a greater need for more antitrust enforcement. And it's possible the Obama administration deserves credit for keeping certain markets more competitive. But this is a policy area that really, really has been neglected, has been underprioritized. Maybe the Clinton administration gets some credit, but since 2000, this has been highly neglected. In health policy, you have a story about that, yeah, that really has to separate the tweets made by the president and silly remarks made by the White House and a number of state attorneys general with the action of the FDA and HHS, which really has been mostly characterized by competence. You know, you have the White House trying to litigate against the Affordable Care Act and blow up the exchanges. But you also have under the surface some efforts to widen access to the health care exchanges, to allow individuals, especially employees of large companies, to be able to select insurance policies that allow them to cut costs and allow them to economize in ways that they would prefer. You know, you have some enormously difficult macro level issues that were not addressed, but at the same time, you had some micro level issues in the private insurance market and and in the development of public markets and Medicare and Medicaid that, you know, were incremental and incrementally progressive. One notable exception is the institution of work requirements, which again is something that was driven by White House rhetoric more than intelligent policy from HHS. But we have really, after all is said and done in the world of health policy, we have really incremental progress and the preservation of the status quo as it was left after the Obama administration left. Now, there's still an enormous amount to do. Healthcare markets are not competitive. Healthcare costs are really quite extortive for lower and working class families. And that will require a multi-pronged effect. And a lot of it will really be consistent with the purpose of this panel, which is it really will require a loosening the grip that large economic interests, hospitals, insurers, pharmaceutical companies, employers also, large employers, are really loosening the grip they have over healthcare markets. And I expect the Biden administration to really make that a priority. There certainly is a lot of work to do. This panel is being recorded on the 9th of December, 2020. And so a lot is still to be seen in terms of the composition of the Biden administration, the personnel who will head up various agencies and sub-agencies. And Anthony, as you mentioned, control of Congress is still a little bit contingent at this stage. But I wondered if, given those limitations, or even despite those limitations, if you might be able to offer some predictions, or maybe if not predictions, maybe some hopes for what we might see over the next four years in terms of corporate power. Carlos? You know, I think, you know, this is a great follow up to Barack's comments, because I think the one thing that can't stand is the imbalance of power and the outsized influence that corporations have. And, you know, I think regardless of what happens in the Senate and, you know, who's in charge, you know, I think whether it be through executive orders or through compromise, we're going to see some reining in of the income inequalities and of the outsourced power that 
corporations have in general, especially in light of what's been highlighted in the pandemic. I assume we're going to see you know, attempts at increasing reporting, because that's always what Democrats seem to do, and monitoring with the hopes that if we can shed more light on situations, then, you know, we can uncover fraud sooner. You know, I also hope, though, that we can be innovative. Like, you know, I hope the extremes we've experienced over the last four years will make us start to anticipate what the problems are and to see what happens when you get an administration that either is operating totally politically and with personal vendettas or that is disregarding the rule of law, well, hopefully we can put some checks in place on corporate power, some checks in place to aid the market and to aid all people, not just the wealthiest people, so that if we do end up with another version of a Trump administration, that it won't be so devastating the next time around. Thank you. Anthony? I think that actually the the next four years will be much more contingent upon the Supreme Court as now comprised by, uh, you know, a fairly uh, heavily influenced, or I should say the court now being heavily influenced by three Trump appointees. And I think a lot of what we will see in the next few years, not just the next four years, but perhaps the next decade, is a real test on Congress's power and states' power, for that matter, to rein in corporate abuses and the the abuses of workplaces, you know, in terms of both civil rights and labor rights. This term, we've had two potentially major bombshell cases, I think, you know, being heard by the court. Uh, The first one being uh, the Fulton case, which is essentially a case about whether or not this all-comers policy that would require a religious nonprofit to serve LGBTQ people in order to be eligible for taxpayer-supported system or to be part of a taxpayer-supported system, whether or not that runs afoul of First Amendment rights, you know, that certainly brings in, I think, a real big implication about whether or not, or I guess the extent to which non-discrimination agreements or non-discrimination provisions that are attached as a requirement to be eligible for some kind of state, federal, local funding, whether those will meet constitutional muster, you know, maybe the court will undermine those kinds of non-discrimination requirements to be eligible for federally and state funded projects. I think that's very concerning. In terms of labor rights, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case out of California about whether a California state law, which requires union organizers to be given access to a private employers' property in order to fill union obligations a certain number of weeks, constitutes a taking. You know, and I think we've seen the Roberts Court do a lot of damage to labor unions and particularly public labor unions. And that was true in the Janus case a few terms ago. But this would really, I think, would strike a huge blow to unions and union organizing if the court finds that there's takings problem here by California mandating employers give union organizers access to their employees on site. You know, and I think there's a couple of other percolating issues in terms of corporate power and employees. There's certainly you know, an issue about the ministerial exception for religiously affiliated employers and whether or not there are certain exemptions from civil rights laws built in the First Amendment there. I think there, you'll see an issue in terms of corporate power and public accommodations come back. 
We had Masterpiece Cake Shop a few terms ago to determine whether or not a state could mandate certain forms of services to be provided to same-sex couples. In a bakery context, we might see that issue come up again. And in the healthcare context, I think we'll see a real potential for new versions of Hobby Lobby to come up, particularly if the Biden administration pursues policies without actually touching on RIFRA, which I, you know, I think we can talk about later. But, you know, I think there's a real question about whether healthcare corporations and healthcare providers are going to have potential challenges to future new regulations in the healthcare space, citing some kind of religious objection. So, I, you know, for me, I really think there, you know, no matter what happens in the Senate runoffs, no matter what happens in terms of folks who are going to head up administrative agencies of relevant jurisdiction, courts are going to be a major roadblock for a lot of the kinds of things that the Biden administration will want to pursue and others will want in terms of expanding civil rights and expanding labor rights. All right. Thank you. And Barack. I got to recover from a mention of Hobby Lobby. That's perhaps my all time least favorite opinion ever but I'm over it now. Uh, So there are some easy ways to ramp up antitrust policy in a very effective way. There are also some hard ways to do it. The easy way to do it, and this I think applies especially in the healthcare sector. So we're actually talking about both of my sectors at the same time, is to really scrutinize hospital mergers and provider mergers. That is, it would include mergers among physician practices and mergers between hospitals and physician practices, so-called vertical mergers in the healthcare space, all of those have proven to increase prices and reduce quality. Uh, And it's a very relatively easy thing to do in the sense that all it would require are some additional resources to the Federal Trade Commission and the Antitrust Division and Department of Justice. It does not require any legislative effort. It does not require any changes in judicial law, judicial made or the common law. But one thing that really is a barrier to effective antitrust enforcement are the courts. This also relates to something that Anthony was describing before. Courts tend to be the major implementers of antitrust law because antitrust law is a body of federal common law. And over the last 20 years or so, we've had mostly bad opinions coming out of the Supreme Court. One of the justices that was really tethering the Supreme Court to good antitrust principles was Justice Stevens. But there have been a number of opinions and there are indications that this is going to expand, that this court finds that lots of things that economists find to be economically troublesome, uh, this court finds not to violate the Sherman Act. So that also is a long-term problem. It's not a problem that's going to be solved in the next four years or possibly even not in the next 10 years. The Federalist Society in particular has had a very, I would say, doctrinaire and anti-empirical approach to antitrust law. And to the degree that the Federalist Society is a predictor of what four or five, six justices on the court are doing, then antitrust law has an uphill battle. As far as making healthcare markets more competitive, and again, thinking about this through the lens of mitigating the growth of corporate power. There are a lot of things that I expect the Biden administration to do. Building on Obamacare and restoring or shoring up the insurance exchanges is going to be a really good way to open up market competition to insurance products. Hopefully, this will mean that a lot of different insurance products will be on the markets, on the exchanges. Hopefully, it means that employers, large employers, will see the plans on the exchanges to be a competitive threat. Some might even, and this will become increasingly possible based on recent regulatory moves, 
some large employers might even be able to direct some of their some of their employees, some of their members onto plans on the exchanges. So the exchanges really could add diversity, add choice, and add competition to the large employer private insurance market, which is really the largest body of healthcare purchasers in the country. There's also been some discussion about a public option, depending on how that happens, that also might liberate certain market forces to create more creative and more innovative health insurance plans. It might encourage the development of narrow networks, which would limit the power, the monopoly power of large hospital systems. So there's a lot that can be done. And most of it will look incremental. Um, Most of it actually will be incremental, although some of it might really have some very significant consequences. And I think a lot of it will also happen and should happen at the administrative level. I don't know how much of it really requires moving Congress. So basically, when you have a mobilized coalition across the industry where people are really eager to reduce healthcare costs and open up individual choice, I think that when the executive branch is controlled by some knowledgeable technocrats, you can actually have a lot of impact. If officials from the Biden administration or from the 117th Congress were to come to you and say, what should we do to address the problem of corporate power over the next four years? What advice would you offer them? Carlos? You know, I would encourage Congress to be different and to let's try something that we haven't tried before and take a look at structure and to think about the federalism that's involved in corporate governance and in the way corporations are built. You know, I think that there is the potential to not be so reliant on securities and to not be so reliant on even antitrust or the Supreme Court you know, and to recognize that by simply engaging more with Delaware and thinking about how that code is written or engaging more with how all the corporate statutes are written, maybe there is a place to intervene before it gets to the point of market manipulation or before it gets to the point of a constitutional question. The other thing I would suggest is promote some entrepreneurship by decoupling work and benefits. I talk to so many entrepreneurs who say they would hang their own shingle or they would completely start their own business and possibly hire other people if healthcare wasn't an issue, if you know retirement benefits weren't an issue, if there were ways for them to not need to depend on their employer for their basic human rights and basic benefits. And the other thing I would suggest is to think about a fix of the tax code that isn't just volleying back and forth with tax credits for or tax benefits for corporations during Republican administrations, with a course correction during Democratic administrations. Think a lot about how the tax code could be used to benefit the middle class and the lower class instead of always focusing on the top. Absolutely reverse the corporate tax benefits that the big corporations are able to take advantage of and, you know, essentially have zero tax, but also think about what can be done possibly in conjunction with uncoupling benefits to help people to start small businesses, stay in small businesses and not be so beholden to employers and the big corporations. Thank you. And Anthony? I think, you know, there'd be a few pieces of legislation I would want Congress to think about. Some of it's already pending and some of it not. You know, certainly I think, you know, one of the big ones would be the Equality Act, which would essentially codify 
the recent decision in Bostock, which held that Title VII sex discrimination provision includes anti-discrimination protections for LGBTQ workers from being discriminated against because they are LGBTQ. But of course, the Equality Act is a little bit more expansive and really does carry over that provision affirmatively in the housing space in terms of credit and jury service, anti-discrimination. So I think that would be a real key piece of law that we need in order to shore up that decision and expand its kind of logical outgrowth. I think we need to think about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and whether or not we want to redefine person in terms of who RIFRA applies to. You know, I've always been of the firm belief that you know, religious nonprofits should be treated differently than religiously motivated or religiously affiliated or, you know, you know, folks of faith who run for-profit entities. And I think that really we need to kind of relook at Hobby Lobby and rework RIFRA in a way that maintains the overwhelming majority of its core protections, but that substantially limits the prospects of it harming non-willing third parties and particularly vulnerable persons, namely here I'm thinking of, of employees. You know, Title II of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 defines public accommodations in a fairly narrow way. I would love to see that expanded dramatically as well as expanded to whom it applies. So right now, public accommodations protections in the non-discrimination space on federal law don't protect women. They don't protect LGBTQ people. I really would love to see really robust expansion of federal public accommodations law. And then the other two kind of things that I would hope Congress would think about and the administration would push is re-looking at a few different aspects of Title VII. One of them being, well, I guess not really Title VII per se, but civil rights employment, anti-discrimination law more broadly. First one is Title VII has a, has a much more forgiving causation standard than other federal anti-discrimination provisions for employment law. So I would love to see some of these other statutory anti-discrimination provisions that aren't as, you know, uh, I guess, plaintiff friendly as Title VII to be brought in line in terms of their causation standards. I think there's a lot of good work to be done there. And I also think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of sexual harassment. Right now, you know, there's a standard of severe or pervasive, which has been kind of a hurdle for a lot of victims of sexual harassment in the workplace. I would love to see that tweaked on the federal level as it has been in a number of states to make it a little less onerous for plaintiffs who are bringing sexual harassment claims to get in front of a jury. So many of our decisions in both the Supreme Court, but in the appellate level, in employment anti-discrimination law, the courts have been pressing their thumbs on the scale in favor of big corporations and employers. And I really think that we need to rethink that. And you know, there's a lot of good statutory fixes that I think the administration can pursue to kind of you know, rebalance the statutory scheme. Thank you. And Barack? I would really like to see a comprehensive approach to enhancing competitive markets. I think that the antitrust division and antitrust law has been relied on too heavily. It's not helpful that they haven't had the resources that have enabled them to do the job. It's also not helpful that they've been led by people who don't really see it as their job to to police certain kinds of anti-competitive conduct. But even with a fully funded and a perfectly staffed antitrust division and Federal Trade Commission, there's still a lot of markets and a lot of policies that lead to any competitive consequences that 
antitrust law and antitrust regulators simply cannot reach. So I would like to see a comprehensive approach. In fact, I have heard that there might be a task force inside the White House called the Task Force on Competition or on Competitive Markets that will be multi-agency that will try to coordinate lots of policies, try to think of how multiple policies affect the competitive outcomes in markets and how they might be able to introduce more competition and give greater empowerment to consumers. And that's especially important in the healthcare sector, but it's important everywhere. If we think about what kind of policies that could enhance healthcare competition, it's not just uh, enforcing the Sherman Act or preventing any competitive mergers. It's also thinking carefully about how we pay for healthcare, thinking about who we allow to provide certain healthcare services. We have a wealth of really talented nurses, for example, who are precluded mostly by state law, but also by some kind of some federal policies from offering really good primary care. We have a lot of uh, locations that can provide really effective health care that are not recipients of federal dollars and therefore can't launch meaningful competitive threats. And we also have the world of telemedicine that, uh, you know, the cat is out of the bag now on telemedicine. That's one, you know, one reasonably positive outcome that we've had out of this terrible COVID pandemic. But the growth of telemedicine, despite its promise, is also limited by certain federal policies. So we have to think about competition more broadly, and we have to think about the wide variety of policy instruments on top of the antitrust laws that might really be able to mitigate the power of monopolists and the power of corporate domination. And I think the best way to do that it would be through the White House, try to think both interdisciplinary and multi-agency and uh, in a coordinated way to try to figure out how we can unleash the power of markets. Thank you for these predictive views and maybe some advice that you might offer to the Biden administration or Congress. I wonder if you have closing thoughts for our listeners or for each other, perhaps. And I'll maybe take a a reverse order this time. Uh, So maybe starting with Barack, any thoughts there? One thing that really needs to be done, and it is very much squarely within the world of corporate power, is thinking about how we address the information ecosystem that we're in. One reason antitrust has been stymied is because there's a significant share of the country that simply thinks that Facebook is out to get Republicans. No empirical evidence for it. But even if there were some empirical evidence for it, you need to make a smarter argument to turn into a policy argument. There are a lot of people out there who think that the Federal Reserve is also out to get Republicans. Uh, and the Federal Reserve, some people even think that the Federal Reserve should not have the kind of independent authority that it has. These touch upon some smart policy debates, but in the information ecosystem that we have, we're not going to have any smart analysis. And it's very hard. It will be very hard for any administration to institute smart policies if the public is being misinformed. Now, one of my real interests from an antitrust perspective is thinking about information markets and how monopolists like Twitter or Facebook or Amazon are engage- and Google are engaging in the dissemination of information and whether or not they are 
either violating antitrust laws or, as a separate question, whether they're doing something that really is antisocial, that's problematic. And those are individual questions about individual companies. They're also individual questions about specific corporate power, but they also pervade into the vast majority of our policy discussions. It's really going to be really hard to have any kind of meaningful progress if we don't agree on underlying facts. And if people, in addition to disagreeing on underlying facts, are revved up into an ideological frenzy that really precludes any kind of intelligent discussion. That's going to be a real challenge over the next couple of years. Thank you. And Anthony? I think for me, and some of this is just from my political science background, but there are occasionally presidencies which can be fundamentally redefining of an era or can define an era. Now, in political science world, we call them reconstructive presidencies, but I think that this is potentially one of them. The Biden administration has a real potential here to, I think, shape the landscape of how we think about uh, the American body politic and how we think about what constitutes mainstream policy, whether that be a broader corporate policy or civil rights policy or economic policy or labor policy. And this is a moment that I think, given just the complete incompetence of the last administration for a renewed vision. What I hope, and I kind of looking back at the Obama administration as well for some lessons on this, what I hope the Biden administration can do is really take advantage of that moment. And I think two things need to be done. The first is a vision needs to be articulated. So there needs to be some broader vision that you know, governing vision that is articulated again and again and again by this administration that brings what seems to be otherwise disparate pieces of policy together under some kind of broader ideological framework. I think that's important because it's important to articulate what this administration will stand for. And once that is kind of congealed in a readily you know, disseminated and easily discernible way for the public. One of the lessons that I think we need to take from the Obama administration is that it was a mistake in many ways to not embrace some fundamental policy positions and the administration really hug itself around them, but to it's important to go to the public and to meet people where they are and explain why it is these changes, these structural reforms need to be tackled and what it means for them. Going to the public is a crucial part of securing their support and making sure that some of these changes are not fleeting and they are, in fact, durable and long-lasting. Another part of that will be the courts, because any kind of the big structural change that I think so many folks wanted from this administration will not be possible if the courts stand athwart good policy under some kind of warped constitutional jurisprudence. And so I think that if and when the time comes that the courts really push back against these kinds of progressive changes akin to what we saw in the mid-1930s, what we need to see is a strong pushback from this administration. And it needs to be done, not just kind of in polite political circles, but needs to be really hard fighting in terms of really going to where people are and taking folks who are standing in the way to task. Thank you. Carlos, last words? 
right. Thanks, guys. So, you know, I think there's a thread between everything that we've all said. And given what I write about, the way I see it is that everything we've discussed from the application of RIFRA and Hobby Lobby to the influence of the information markets to healthcare and other benefits as they impact the everyday person vis-a-vis corporations, you know, it can all be boiled down to how we define entities and how we define their rights. So, you know, even what we consider to be a market for antitrust purposes needs to be realigned with the realities of how business is done today and how markets work today and how people go to work today, how people earn money today. And I think that sort of acknowledgement that the way that we've done things in the past and some of our definitions and structures that are left over from past economies and past realities just aren't working with the way that we do business today and the way the world operates today. So I, you know, I think there's an opportunity to embrace technology while acknowledging what technology has done and to give consideration to the fact that corporations are, it's possible for them to get as big as they've gotten. And so maybe we need to rethink what personhood looks like when we're giving them rights that are inherent in the nature of being human beings. So, you know, I I would love for this administration to take advantage of the fact that we've kind of all had this culture shock, you know, and to see that policies from even the 90s just don't really make sense anymore because that's not what the world looks like. This has been the fourth episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast Symposium on Corporate and Financial Regulation in the Biden Administration. This panel has focused on corporate power and has featured Carlos Chapman, Anthony Michael Kreis, and Barack Richmond. Carlos, Anthony, Barack, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.